And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. That story, what we just read is like one of the funniest. I'm just sitting here grinning from ear to ear. Uh, you might not know the whole story, uh, but it is like one of the funniest chapters of the entire Bible. I think it, it's just got so much comedic value. So I'll do my best to help you experience the comedy that I was experiencing in that moment as she was reading this. Because it is, even as I hear it today, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like everything that's happening here is absurd. Um, let me ask you a question as we start today. What's the most relieved you've ever felt? What's, when was the situation where you just felt like, oh, I'm glad that's, that's taken care of. I'm so relieved. Earlier this week, uh, we had a moment like that in, in our home. Uh, and it, it's small relief here, okay? The, the amount of relief that you experience is directly correlated with the amount of fear you're experiencing. And so a little fear equals like a little relief. But earlier this week, we had a little bit of fear in our home. My wife uh, has a, a pair of, of earbuds. They're not like Apple EarPod, uh, AirPod. Sorry, I'm like really showing my age at that moment. The EarPods, uh, Fletcher, you don't need to print the internet, okay? Like, um, uh, the, they're not like that nice, but they're a nice pair of earbuds. And my wife had lost them, and she, she was driving herself crazy. I mean, looking everywhere for these earbuds. And she spent like two days looking at all the normal places, and like you know, your normal family of five, we have about 17 different places that these could be hiding in. It's like the junk drawer in the living room, the junk drawer in the kitchen, the junk drawer in the office. We've got, I think, at least five junk drawers. Um, and that's not even including my secret uh, junk drawer that I just have you know, my nightstand, all the things from like my teenage years uh, stuffed in there that I can't get rid of. Uh, my wife's given me one place where I can keep all the things that I don't want to throw away. She could not find the earbuds anywhere until it dawned on us that, hey, we have a one-year-old, and the one-year-old finds even more creative places to hide things. And so now our search goes, broadens from junk drawers to just normal drawers, and it broadens from, from where we would normally place something to, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere in this house. She looked for like a whole 36 hours. I mean, probably like every hour we would spend like five minutes looking, where are my earbuds? The next morning, she goes to put on her shoes, and what does she find? The earbuds in the boots. There they are. The one-year-old has found the perfect hiding spot for the earbuds. How relieved. She felt a little bit of fear and a little bit of relief. Now, that doesn't compare to how our friends and family felt back in 2013 when there was a bombing at the Boston Marathon. 
And they knew that Megan and I were at the marathon watching the race. We were only about a mile from where the bombing happened. And so I had a few friends tell me that when they texted me to see that I was okay and those, you know, apple blue uh, dots popped up, they saw that I was texting in return, that that was the most relief that they had ever felt. Because it was a big fear, and so I felt more fear. The closer to destruction you are, the more relieved you feel. And so today, as we study this book of Ruth, the people of God are on the precipice of annihilation. They're about, of Ruth, I said, I said Ruth, it's Esther, thank you. Um, they're on the precipice of annihilation, and God delivers them. And so they still, to this day, celebrate what God did through a festival called Purim. And, and that's one reason why this story is so hilarious, because, and we'll see the foundation of, of Purim. Um, but with the Purim festival, the Jewish people to this day celebrate this. And I actually Googled up uh, modern-day Purim celebration, and it is wild. I was not expecting this. It is like somewhere between like Halloween and Mardi Gras and British Parliament. Um, because they had just a couple of guys up front with uh, reading the story of Esther. They were kind of singing the story of Esther. And then all of the children were up there. But the only thing is, is all of them were wearing costumes. Everybody was dressed up like a superhero or like a witch or something like that. It was like Halloween. And it's to represent the hiddenness of Esther, how she was a, a Jewish person in hiding. And in fact, the, the name Esther itself means hiding. And then they would read the story. And every time they got to the word Haman, Everybody in the crowd would go, boo, like boo hiss, as if they were trying to blot his name out from history. It's a wild experience. And so today, as we go through this story, I want you to be thinking about this feeling of relief that we can have from the people of God being saved at just the right time by the right person in the right place. We're, we're just doing our second week at this study of the book of Esther. We're only spending two weeks in it. So I'll give you a quick summary of what's happening here. In case you weren't here last week, um, the, the book of Esther, it occurs about 500 years before the days of Jesus. It occurs in the nation of Persia. But at this point, Persia was not just a nation. Persia was like an empire. To the Persians, they had conquered all the known peoples of the world. Now, there were more people. There were civilizations going on in the Far East. There were civilizations in Africa. There were civilizations all over the place, but these people didn't know about them. It wasn't a global world. So to these people, they had conquered the world. They owned almost everything. The only part of the world that they had not conquered that they knew about was southern Greece. They had 127 provinces ranging from Africa all the way over to uh, Iraq and Iran, uh, Azerbaijan, and all, all, all that's going on over there. They had a lot of territory, and King Xerxes was ruling it all. And Xerxes was a powerful, a powerful king, and he uh, decided to get rid of his former wife, Queen Vashti, and find a new wife. And his new wife was named Esther, and she won a competition that was very degrading, but she did win the competition, and God placed her into the position of authority. And so there's uh, four main characters. There's King Xerxes, or um, Ahasuerus. There's, oh, who is a drunk king, he's always drinking. Um, there's Queen Esther. And then there's uh, Mordecai, which is Esther's cousin, who also serves as her father figure, 
through the story. And there's Haman, which is the most sinister and evil person in the entire story. He has devised this plot last week. He, he was um, insulted by the way that Mordecai treated him. Mordecai, he was walking through uh, the king's gate, and Mordecai refused to get up, refused to pay homage, refused to pay honor to Haman. And so Haman went off, he, he went out of his mind, and he decided, king overreaction over here, to murder every Jewish person in the entire empire, which to him is in the entire world. He wanted to kill them all, all of them. He wanted to kill them all. And so now that's where we pick up the story is Mordecai has gotten word that all of the Jewish people are going to be destroyed. And so he's called his cousin Esther and said, Esther, you have to help us. And Esther said, you're crazy. You want me to just walk into the king's chamber and to ask him for something? No one does that. You can't just go in there. That's, that's worthy of death. He has to call upon you. And he hasn't called upon me in an entire month. So good luck. Uh, who would do that? And, and Mordecai, her cousin, responds in father figure. He responds, Esther, God's going to save us. He has this big faith. This big faith. He actually doesn't say God. That, that's the interesting thing about the book of Esther is the name of God is not mentioned in the entire book. Some people have questioned whether or not Esther belongs in the Bible at all. But when you look carefully at the book of Esther, you can see God's fingertips, all of fingerprints all over this story. They are over and over again appearing throughout this story. And so Mordecai says, one way or another, the Israelites will be delivered. But who knows, Esther? Maybe God has placed you in this, maybe, maybe you've been placed in this position for such a time as this. And Esther responds with this courageous, you're right, I will go and talk to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And so we have this bold confidence that she walks in there with. And so as we continue the story, I want you to be looking first for the fingerprints of God as we go through the story, but second, you need to be looking for the shadow of Christ, because the, the story of Jesus is all over this story, and he'll show up over and over again. Much like Esther, Christ took on a position of weakness and entered the throne room of God to plead for the life of those who had a death sentence. And today, you'll hear more shadows of, the, of Christ. So let's hop into the story. The first half of the story that, we, that I just summarized for you and that we're going to continue to, to build upon, the first half of the story, the first, not, the first three chapters, actually go over a nine-year period from the third year of King Xerxes' reign to the, to the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign. So we just flew through a lot of history, a nine-year period that we go through. And now, in this next section of the story of Esther, the story slows down. And we go through the next uh, half of the book in just two days. It's very reminiscent to what happens in the gospel accounts of Jesus. In, in all four gospel accounts, about half the book is dedicated to the first three years of Jesus' ministry, and then half the book is spent just talking about the last week of his life because it was so important at the last week of Christ's life. And so in this story, we, we're slowing down, and we're hearing a few more details of what's going on the entire time. Chapter 5 starts like this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So this is the moment of truth. She's gotten dressed. 
Notice how she's dressed. She's not wearing her seduction uh, clothes. She's not going to seduce Xerxes into her way of thinking. She's wearing her royal robes. She's dressed as the queen. And she's standing there, and you can just imagine her heart pumping because she's about to do something that she could very well get killed for. She's standing outside of the most powerful person in the entire world, his, his throne room there, and she's waiting to enter. Is he going to kill her? She walks in, moment of truth. What does he do? He, he holds out the golden scepter. As if to say, go ahead and say it. In fact, what she said, what he says is, what is it, Queen Esther? This is the first time she's called Queen Esther in the entire story. And so Xerxes is calling upon her. He can tell that something's going wrong. Remember, she did a three-day fast before going into this room. It's not like she's looking that great. She's looking a little rough. She's been fasting for three whole days. And he says, what is it? It's not to say, he's basically saying, what's wrong? What's going on with you? What is it, Queen Esther? What is your, what is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. That's not a literal offer. He's not literally offering you know, half of his kingdom. He's basically saying, oh, try me. I'm in a good mood. And so he's listening. And, uh, What does she say? But she says, King, come to my banquet tonight. You see, Esther is, is, she's she's sharp. She knows what she's doing. She's not going to ask for it right now. She knows Xerxes is a drinker. And when he gets a little bit more wine in his system, he's more, he might be a little more agreeable to what she has to say. And so she says, Xerxes, come to my banquet tonight. Bring Haman with you, and we'll talk then. And so they go to the banquet, and uh, she, she hopes that she can get King Headache, which is what uh, Ahasuerus, the Hebrew word for Xerxes, uh, sounds like, is headache. And they show up, and Esther says, you know, not tonight. Tomorrow night. Come again. I, I'll do another banquet tomorrow night. And then what happens in the day between the two banquets is the very center of the book, it's the hinge that the whole book folds upon, and it's some of the funniest, most comedic stuff in the entire Bible. It just has so many ironic reversals of what happens in between those two days. So first banquet's over. They're all getting ready for the second banquet on the next night, and uh, the story switches back to Haman. Verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, That he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. It reminds me of this old YouTube clip. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's pretty old. But there was a King Curtis. And he says, I was having a very, very calm day until this. And that's kind of what Mordecai, uh, what Haman reminds me of. I was doing just fine until this happened. You see, Haman, he has the second most power in the entire kingdom. He is a very powerful man. He has a lot going for him, but yet his ego is so fragile that one person refusing to pay him honor will drive him to madness. He is losing it. Friends, when you live for the praise of people, you die with the praise of people. When you live for the praise of people, You will die when you fail to get the praise of people. Your heart is hungry for praise. 
And if you just feed off of that and say, this is what will make me great, this is how I will define myself, this is how I know I can live with myself, is people will approve me, people will like me, I feel successful and powerful, whatever it might be for you. The second that someone doesn't give you that thing that you're building your identity and your life upon, it will drive you mad. Now, most of us won't go into a murderous rage like, Mordecai, like Haman, but it might keep us awake at night. Or we might replay the situation over and over again. Do you ever do that? You have just a, a mental video that you just hit rewind and play over and over again. You think, how should I have responded to this so that I could have gotten more of what I was looking for in this situation? Friends, when you live for the praise of people, you die by the praise of people. And so Haman is dying because Mordecai has wounded his fragile little ego. What does he do? He goes home and he brags to his wife about how much money he has. He has his friends there and he's just like, I, I'm an important man. He's, it, it, the story's ridiculous. He's, he's just going to his wife and he's bragging about how much money he has, how many children he has, how successful he is. He's really full of himself. And then he says, even Queen Esther, let no one come to the banquet with the king to, that she, she prepared except for me. And tomorrow she invited me again. Haman has no idea what's going on. Esther is not his friend. Esther wants him to be there because he's the villain, and she needs to be able to point to say he's the one. But he doesn't know that. He thinks that she just likes him and that she's invited him because he's an important person. But this Mordecai character, mm, he can't get over it. He's so important, but just this one unimportant Jewish person sitting by the king's gate, not even in a place of honor, is driving him nuts. His, his idolatry of power is ruling his heart. And so what does he do? He comes up with a plan. And he says, this is, this is what we should do with Mordecai. Never mind the fact that I've already issued an edict that in several months from now, every Jew in the entire empire will be destroyed. I need Mordecai to be especially destroyed because he's annoying me. And so what does he do? He says, I need to build a large stake in the ground, just a big pole that's sharp on the end. And I need to put Mordecai on that pole. I just need to impale him. And so when, it, when the Bible describes this pole, it doesn't accurately, for our modern ears, make sense. The pole, it says it's 50 cubits. That is 20 meters or six stories high. It is huge. It is a large wooden stake sticking out of the ground. I mean, if this was in the middle of Somerville, it would be as tall as the tallest buildings, taller than anything in Davis Square. You would be driving through, and it would look like a flagpole in Davis Square. That's what he's constructed, right? And where did he construct it? Right next to his house, so that he could watch Mordecai decay as he, as he was on that, that large stake. Brutal, brutal. Now, we enter, we enter chapter 6. Chapter 6, Karen Jobes, a Bible scholar, I, I appreciate her a lot. She says chapter 6 is argue, arguably the most ironically comical scene in the entire Bible. What happens in chapter 6, the story jumps again to King Xerxes. And King Xerxes is the, is the night between the two banquets, and he can't sleep. That happens to me sometimes. But he doesn't have Netflix to turn on, and so what does he do? 
He calls for his eunuchs to come in and to read him stories of how great he is. He calls for the eunuchs to come in and to read the Chronicles, the book of Chronicles. And as they're reading the book of Chronicles, the, the page that they turn to just so happens to be the story of Mordecai hearing about the assassination attempt to kill the king and then going to tell Queen Esther and saving the king's life. And he's moved. The king, he's moved by this. And he says, this Mordecai, what's been done for him? The eunuchs say, nothing, sir. And he says, well, we got to fix that. Who's in, who's in the court? Which official can I bring in to make, to make something happen for Mordecai? And they said, oh, Haman just walked in. Now, Haman had just walked in because he needed to get the king's permission to, um, to, to have Mordecai killed. He's already got this stake built. He's already got this flagpole to impale uh, Mordecai upon. He went ahead and built that without permission. But now he needs a little bit of permission before he can just stick someone on a, on a stake by his house. So he's walking in. Mordecai's all happy. He walks in, and uh, they, they say, Mordecai, uh, they, they say, Haman, come in. Sorry, I get their names. I keep going getting their names mixed up. Haman, come in. He's all happy. Haman, come in. And the king looks at Haman and says, Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delights in? And Haman's like, ooh, it's my chance. I'm going to tell, who would the king delight in more than me? This is literally what it says. He says, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And so Haman just describes his perfect day. It's a day in the middle of, of April. It's April uh, 12th. You, you need a, you, that way you don't have to, you can wear a light sweater. It's not too hot, not too cold. He says, this is what should happen for the man that the king delights in. For the man that the king del delights to honor, let ro royal robes be brought which the king himself has worn, and the horse that the king himself has ridden, let him ride on that, and, whose and, and on whose head a royal crown is set for the man that the, the, delights, that the king delights to honor. And let a royal official lead the man through the city, proclaiming, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And when Haman was done, Xerxes says, You're good at this. That sounds great. Now go get Mordecai and put him on the, on the horse. Put, put my robes on him, put the crown on his head. And Haman, since you're an official and you're right here, you be the one that leads him through the streets saying, thus is done for the man that the, that the king delights to honor. Oh, can you imagine? Haman goes from hero to zero in zero seconds. He's just, oh, completely deflated at that moment. And so he actually has to do this. He's got this stake prepared to murder this man, and instead he has to go and get him, put him on a horse, and lead him through. And you, you, just, you can hear the enthusiasm in, in Haman's voice. Thus is the man the king delights to honor. He's not going to be joyful about this, but he does it. Not only does Haman go from hero to zero, but Mordecai, he goes from zero to hero. He's transfigured for just one moment to go from this humble person that no one knows to show a full, glorious image of who he is. Now, when this is done, Haman and Mordecai, they both think, oh, that was cool, and they just both go home. They think that's it. Um, end of story. Haman goes home and tells his wife, 
you won't believe what happened to work, what happened to me at work today. You know, that Mordecai guy, I had to lead him through. And they said, oh, is Mordecai, oh, you're in trouble. For some reason, there's like a little bit of foreshadowing. They're like, you're in trouble. Now we, we fast forward just a little bit and go to Queen Esther's second banquet. And the king asked Esther again, what is it you want? Curiosity's killing me, my queen. What is it that you want? And Esther, at that moment, she lets it all out. So she's buttered them up. They're, they're drinking wine. And she starts to tell him what she wants. And the queen, queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be com compared with a loss to the king. And so this is how the king learns for the first time that Esther is actually Jewish. He did not know before this moment, and he did not even know about this edict. Haman, his trusted official, had come in and said, hey, give me your ring. I got something I got to do. And the, and the ring is like the signature for the king. And so he issued the edict apart from the king even really knowing what was happening. Haman has done all of this. And so the king responds, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther responds, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And if we were in a Jewish uh, synagogue right now, they would all, boo! The king is irate and he's drunk. Chapter seven, or chapter 7, verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. He's so angry. He's like, I can't even look at anyone right now. I'm just going outside. And he's a little drunk. And while he's gone, Haman, he starts begging. He's like, Esther, please, please, don't, don't let him kill me, Esther. And when the king walks back in, Haman, he's not attacking the queen. There's, it's almost certain he's not attacking her. But he's like falling at her feet falling upon her, just begging her. And the king, he sees his moment. He says, you even dare attack my wife? And it's almost like guard sees him. At that moment, they, pull, they cover his face. They cover Haman's face. So they probably took a bag and stuck it over his face like he's a dead man. And then one of the eunuchs speaks up. And this is pretty hilarious as well. Uh, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, one of uh, Haman's co-workers, let me tell you, he said, you know, king, there's this nice, new, shiny flagpole with a sharp end. Uh, we just installed it right next to Haman's house. And the king said, that sounds delightful. And so they go. And, and at that moment, you can just imagine Haman being like, thanks, buddy. Real helpful. Real helpful commentary. And they go and they put Haman on Mordecai's instrument of execution. Haman meets the end on the very stake that he had prepared to end Mordecai upon. And then, the king is, and then the king does even more. He actually says, Esther, Mordecai's estate belongs to you. Or Haman's estate belongs to you. And then Esther grants it to Mordecai. Gives Mordecai Haman's house. And then the king takes off his ring and he says, Mordecai, I trust you. You're going to take Haman's position. 
You see this great reversal where everything was going wrong for Mordecai. Everything was going wrong for the Jewish people. And it's all turned around. Jesus has this saying where he says, In the kingdom of heaven, the first shall become last and the last shall become first. And here we see that played out in history. Of just an example of how the last became first and the first became last. The book of Esther is full of ironic reversals. Mordecai gets the exaltation that Haman wanted. Haman gets the death that he had prepared for Mordecai. Mordecai then gets the honor and prestige that Haman had. Two year, nine years of history prepares for two days of drama. Mordecai, when he was on the horse, he was transfigured. He was shown in his glory, led around by Haman, being given full before he was being given full glory before he took full authority later on. It was just a foretaste of what was to come. Much like Christ, who was transfigured in his full glory before three of his disciples, before one day he would become resurrected and take on the full authority that was rightfully his. How could you read this story of the execution without seeing the correlation with the cross? That the instrument that Haman had prepared for Mordecai ended up becoming his own doom. Much like the instrument that Satan had prepared for Jesus ended up becoming the instrument of his own destruction. But that's not the end of the story. The edict still stands. The Jewish people are still going to be killed. And there's no way to repeal, there's no way to repeal a royal edict. What they actually have to do is find another way to stop it. The, the Jews are still destined to be destroyed. So, what they do is they institute a second decree that says anyone who tries to fulfill the first decree, which is basically be uh, KKK members of the center of Persia and go and kill all the, all the Jewish people on this specific date, a date that uh, Haman had rolled a, a dice called a, pur, a pur so that they could select the day, and he had picked the day for 11 months from when he first rolled the dice. Anybody that tries to go and do that act of terrorism, the Jewish people can now defend themselves and should defend themselves. And they can kill anyone that tries to kill them. And so when, they do, when the day does roll around, there are a few people that are still bold enough and hateful enough to go out and try to kill the Jewish people. But they all met their destruction, and the Jewish people won the victory. And that's why they celebrate the, the festival of Purim to this day, still celebrating it. The, so they, they can be reminded that though they were on the brink of destruction, God made a way. And they read the story of Esther to be like, God will always make a way for us, which is true for us as the people of God, my friends. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know if you're on the precipice of destruction or if you just don't see a way forward. But God makes a way. He always makes a way. And that's what we remember. Though it feels hopeless at times, God makes a way. As you look at this story, you can see the fingerprints of God all over the story. The fingerprints of God appear over and over again. Though God's not mentioned, Esther just happened to become the queen and Mordecai just so happened to, to overhear the plot to kill the king. And Haman just so happened to make that execution stake. 
Xerxes just so happened to have a sleepless night. The eunuchs just so happened to turn to the page telling about the time Mordecai saved the king's life. Haman just so happened to walk in at the exact right moment for him to have to lead Mordecai around. All of these amazing coincidences. Or are they? Or are they? Again, as we read the story, there's a temptation to make this story about ourselves. If God were to ask you, who is the man that the king delights to honor? How would you respond? How should the king delight to honor the man that he delights in? How would you respond? Would you say, oh, obviously, I'm the one that God delights in. Here's all I want. Here's everything I want. And how often is that how our prayers are? It's just self-centered. Here's everything that I want. Here's what would make me happy. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to, to pour out your heart to the Lord. But what you see here is that when you live your life for yourself, it actually leads to your own ruin. When you live your life for yourself, it actually leads to your own ruin. When you make this story about yourself, you put yourself into the position of Haman, who thought this story was about him. He was living it like it was him. He was making plans. He was, he was determining his success. But it wasn't about Haman. But when you make your life about Christ, you might see, as you read this story, that Jesus is the greater Mordecai. Though he was humble, he deserved all the honor and praise. And as he receives the praise, and we follow him, we also receive just a glimmer of his praise. So when you hear God say, what, what, does it, what would it delight the king? What should the king do for the man that uh, he delights in? You need to think to Christ. And that's the man that God delights in. And everything that is true of Christ, if you're found in him, is true of you. You are adopted into his family. You have the right and authority to stand before God and to speak with him your prayers, your wants, your needs, your desires. And he is kind with you as he is with Christ. Everything that is true of Jesus becomes true for you because you are found in him, because you are following after him, and the glory that he experiences is shared with you. In this story, we're also reminded of the irrevocable decree of justice against us. Haman decreed that every Jewish person be killed on a specific date. The entire people of God were on the brink of extermination. But God raised up a hero. God delighted to raise up a hero and to, to deliver them. And friends, it isn't something that we like to think about, but do you know that the day of destruction is coming? That there is a day when every person will meet their maker. When there is a day when you will die. Life does not last forever in this way. And every person has gone their own way apart from God. Each of us has lived for ourselves as Haman instead of for God. The date is set. Death is coming. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. There is a God, and you will stand before him. 
to be judged as righteous or unrighteous. And if we're in our own selves, all of us deserve the sentence of death. Every one of us. But in just the right time, God raised up a hero. For he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And through your belief in him, when you stand before the just God to be judged upon what you've done in this life, he will only see what Christ has done on your behalf. You have a hero who has won the victory. Your only hope when standing before God is to have Jesus vouching for you. The more that you realize this, the closer you stand, the more you realize you don't deserve anything from God, but yet Christ has earned it for you. The more you deserve that, the more you understand that the day of destruction is coming and you don't deserve to make it into heaven, the more relieved you might feel as you understand what this hero has done for you. As we talk about the work of Christ, it should be the delight of our hearts because we know we are hopeless without him. As the Jewish people felt, thank you for saving us, Esther and Mordecai, we feel the same toward Christ. He has done it all. He has won the victory. How relieved are you? It's directly related to how scared you are. When you truly sense your sin before a living God and you stare at what should be your own destruction, and when you look at the cross and you realize that is what you deserve, but yet he bore God's wrath on our part. He, God's own son took on the punishment. That is his love for us. It warms our heart. I encourage you, church, if you are an old believer, someone who's been following Christ for many years, let this story ring true to you today. You don't deserve that. But yet God loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he didn't just send a hero. He sent his own son. He is kind, gentle, lowly, loving, compassionate. And he did that for you. You never get over that. You never get over that, that you've been loved completely. You're known completely, yet loved completely. It's easy to love someone that you don't know very well. But anybody who's married will tell you, the more you get to know someone, sometimes the more difficult it is to love them. But that's the love of a marriage, and that's the love of God that says, the more I know you, the more I love you. He loves you completely. If you're not a believer here today, uh, I'm not naive enough to think that people here, everybody here, might, might not be a follower of Christ. And so let me encourage you. That love is open to you as well. That you can receive that today. That you can know where you stand before God. That the day of destruction is coming for everybody. The day of death will be here but you can stand confident because of Christ. And I would love to talk to you and lead you through that if you would like to take the next steps and what it means to follow Jesus. Each week we celebrate a communion meal. And when we take communion, we remember the reversal where our righteous champion, Christ, was vindicated and the devil and all his forces were defeated. And we declare that one day all the people of God 
will finally be redeemed. The date of destruction is set, but guess what? We have a hero and we have victory. So let's stand and pray as we prepare to to receive this meal. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we come to your table that we be reminded of what Christ has done for us and that we might glory in it. That we might look at at the death that we deserve and know that you've received it, that your son has received it. And Jesus, we, we pray that you'll be with us in a special way as we receive this meal. Holy Spirit, be changing our hearts, warming our hearts in worship, helping us to feel the relief from the burden of sin that we each carry. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.